Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series in the book of Matthew, The Mysteries of Compassion, with a message entitled Compassion Beyond the Borders. So turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There's a well-known story of Mahatma Gandhi. It's a story that actually comes from his own autobiography. Gandhi says that he had read the Gospels and in consequence, he was seriously considering converting to Christianity. And one reason is that he believed that the teachings of Jesus could be the solution to the caste system in India that was dividing the people. And so on a given Sunday, he went to attend a church service and it was a church that was under the British. And as he entered the lobby, the usher refused to give him a seat, and he suggested that he go worship with his own people. And Gandhi had come to speak to the minister about converting, but those words from the usher sealed the deal. He never came back to church again. Indeed, he wrote that the Christians also have a caste system, and this was no answer. And so on that act of racism, Gandhi thought no more of converting. Indeed, one has to wonder what might have happened to the nation of India had that usher greeted him warmly and welcomed him in Jesus' name. In our study of Matthew chapter 14 to 18, it's a section of scripture that was written to showcase the grace and forgiveness that are found in Jesus. Well, we come today to a passage that, well, it's strange and troubling. So let's read the entire passage and get the flavor of it. And I'm reading Matthew 15, 21 to 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, a great many people reading this find Jesus' attitude toward this woman, well, I guess troubling to say the least. I mean, Jesus calls this woman a dog, and were she not overwhelmingly humble and persistent, he would have sent her away. Yeah, she, she would have been gone. And so even though this is a text that does end with grace, It seems to start with what, you know, it almost seems like ugly attitudes from none other than Jesus himself. Have we read this text rightly? Well, let's see what we can discover if we get into the details. Verse 21 says that Jesus left the region of Galilee in his hometown of Capernaum, and he went north to the district of Tyre and Sidon. In today's terms, that would mean he was going to Lebanon. Now, both cities, that is Tyre and Sidon, while they were located right on the Mediterranean Sea, And as I've said, it's to the north of Galilee. It's not a Jewish area, it's Gentile. So please notice that Jesus went on his own accord to a Gentile area, an area where historically Solomon had once done a considerable amount of trade. And in those days, Tyre and Sidon were considered allies of Solomon. But I say all of that just simply to make a point that if Jesus wanted, like the Pharisees, to just keep away from Gentiles, well, he was doing a remarkably poor job of it. Mark, who tells the same story, adds a detail that's not found in Matthew. You know, Mark 7, 24 says, And from there he arose 
and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Now, that might indicate that Jesus, after his rather confrontational dispute with the Pharisees, you know, about what constitutes purity and and what it is that defiles a person, well, he's now decided to withdraw to take some heat off of his public ministry. And so going to the region of Tyre and Sidon, well, that might have been just the ticket. But Mark adds that he entered into a private house. So, you know, the real question is, is this a Jewish house? Now, we don't know, but even if it was, it, it still makes a point. If this woman entered into a Jewish house, well, clearly she had been allowed to enter. And and furthermore, who's the outsider? I mean, this woman is right where you would expect to find her. She's a Gentile living in a Gentile land. And it's Jesus who's not where you expect to find him. In essence, he's the outsider. She's not. Now then, given that both Matthew and Mark placed this incident immediately after the dispute with the Pharisees, about what makes a person defiled, it seems quite likely that this incident, as in Tyre and Sidon, would have chronologically happened right after that dispute. So with the question of defilement still ringing in their minds, here we are. Now, even though Jesus went in secret, it would appear that the people in Tyre and Sidon would have heard about him. His presence could not be kept a secret. He's a great healer, and this area has come to know that. Enter the Canaanite woman. She is a Gentile, and according to Jewish tradition, she's defiled. She approaches Jesus, presumably in the house where he's staying, and her text says she's crying. The idea is not that she's weeping, she's crying out. And furthermore, the verbal form that Matthew uses to describe this, well, it comes in the imperfect tense, which means she's consistently doing it constantly, persistently, tenaciously. But look now how she addresses him. First, she calls him Lord, and we have to admit that Lord, while it could be simply a title of respect, but it's also a title for God. And then secondly, she calls him Son of David. Now, Son of David, that's a fascinating thing to say. It can't simply mean that she knows he's a direct descendant of King David. I mean, she seems to know this is a title for the Messiah. This is the anointed one who will one day rule the earth. And when I read this, I find myself amazed. I mean, where did this woman get this information? She has no doubt heard of the healing ministry of Jesus, but she has also come to a conclusion. This is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. And that's what this Canaanite woman believes about Jesus. She knows the Messiah's stories, and she believes he's the one. Now to what she wants. Her first words were, have mercy on me, son of David. And given what we already know, Matthew 14 to 18, it's written to highlight grace and forgiveness and compassion of our Lord. And so her request is exactly in line with how Matthew wants us to understand the heart attitude of Jesus. This is who Jesus is, says Matthew. And so knowing that, she's appealing to Jesus' heart, the very foundation of his ministry. Now, her choice of words, have mercy, it's it's well chosen. Mercy, that's kindness, which is expressed to someone who is both suffering and undeserving. So she knows her status, and she has no right to ask, but she appeals for mercy. And why? Her daughter is horribly demon-possessed. And to be clear again, demon possession refers not to mental illness. It refers to a condition in which an evil personality of a demon has taken control of someone. Her daughter is becoming unrecognizable. The demon, the strong presence, is controlling her entirely, and the mother is beside herself. 
So put this together. She believes Jesus to be the Messiah, and she needs mercy, and she's persistent and desperate. And we know that mercy and grace and compassion and love, all that stuff, it's what Jesus is all about. And there should have been no hitch here whatsoever. But as we've seen, Jesus isn't responding. He doesn't say a thing, neither good nor bad. He he doesn't react at all. He doesn't reply. He doesn't say a single word. There's just silence. And then, ah, then, then there's the disciples. Send her away. Now, haven't we read those words before? Oh, we have. In the last chapter, when the crowd came to Jesus for healing and it was getting late, the disciples said, send them away. You know, it seems, you know, the disciples, they haven't learned a thing. I mean, after Jesus fed the crowd, he had arranged to have his disciples put into a boat where they were in danger of drowning before Jesus came to them walking on the water. And Jesus had wanted his disciples to see what, what desperation felt like. And had they not cried out, save us, Lord, we're perishing. We need mercy. Yeah, they had cried out exactly that. And Jesus had wanted them to feel the very desperation that so many others were feeling constantly. But whatever they had learned there on that boat, it didn't translate to this Canaanite woman. Yeah, she was just as desperate as they had been. But they don't empathize with her at all. And now after the silent of the moment, Jesus finally speaks. He says, I was sent only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You know, I can almost hear the disciples responding. They're saying, amen, Lord, you just preach it. You tell her good. But we need to stop and consider those words. You know, a great many Bible teachers are going to say, look, up to this point in the ministry of Jesus, he had limited his ministry only to Israel. He would expand it further on. And they point out that in Matthew 10, 5 and 6, where he instructs the 12 on their first missions assignment, there he says to them, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. Well then, that must be what Jesus had in mind at first. Now, does that mean that Jesus closed off his heart to the Gentiles? Now, stay with me, because in just a moment, I'm going to tell you why that's definitely not true. Jesus always ministered to Gentiles. Hi, this is Dr. John Newfeld. In the past five years, I found myself in a ministry role I would never have imagined. At first, I have to admit, the move from pastor to sitting in a studio behind a microphone, well, it seemed strange. But over time, having heard firsthand stories of God at work, I could have not been more convinced I'm right where God wants me to be. Thank you for your kindness and encouragement and supporting this ministry with your gifts and prayers. In gratitude, I wanna send you a gift, my newest series, Faith and What We Hope For, and a special edition of our 2020 Highlight Reel series. Five of my most requested messages from the past five years are in that one package. It's just a modest way of saying thanks for being with me. So call today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca and request Faith in What We Hope For and we'll automatically send you our 2020 Highlight Reel series. It's my gift and it's free. Please continue to stand with us in 2020. You might wonder why the Jews of Jesus' day had such a negative view of the Gentiles. I suppose we might say they're not unique. I mean, lots of cultures, I might even say all the cultures of the world have had a negative view of people that are unlike themselves, foreigners. I mean, 
Racism is deeply rooted in the human heart. Now, that's true. But there's something else here. If you read through the law carefully, I mean, you're going to read a great many passages demanding separation of Israel from their pagan neighbors. They're supposed to eat very different food. They're supposed to wear different clothing. They were not to intermarry with them. They were to utterly reject their gods and their goddesses. So why did God give those commands? Well, it's because if he had not, Israel would have intermingled with the nations and they would have utterly forsaken the Lord their God. They already had so many problems with idolatry, so separation was essential. These commands were given to separate Israel as a people of the Lord. The command to remain separate, well, that command, you can even find it in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? Ha, but it's unfair to only consider one command at the expense of all the others. I mean, you read through the Old Testament, look like the book of Jonah, and you'll find God's great love for the people of the city of Nineveh. It was a thoroughly Gentile city. Or read of Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. He pleads with God that if a Gentile from a foreign land comes and prays towards this temple, I mean, Solomon's pleading with God. He says, God, answer the prayers of that Gentile so that, says Solomon, that the whole world may know that there is a God in Israel who answers prayers, a God who's concerned with Gentiles as well. Indeed, it was always the intention of God that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham. And the gospel story, while it prohibits paganism and assimilating with paganism, it's still an invitation for the world to come and to know the God who truly exists. Now, getting back to the ministry of Jesus. Is it really true that up to that point in time, Jesus had committed himself to only offering healing and exorcisms to the house of Israel? Answer, no, that's not true. Go all the way back to Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 and 7. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him without hesitation. A Roman centurion who has no doubt a Gentile servant, and without hesitation, Jesus tells this Gentile soldier, I'm going to come to your house and heal your servant just like that. So then, I mean, what do we make of Jesus telling this Canaanite woman that he was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel, a word that would have been spoken with the, you know, with a knowing approval of a group of disciples who, you know, first, I mean, they were, they were too quick to send people away. And second, they would have carried the Jewish contempt for the Gentiles in their own hearts. And third, and I haven't discussed this yet, but, but they would have looked at a woman as an inferior. I mean, does that not play into every prejudice that they already had? What in the world was our Lord thinking by talking this way? But Jesus is not done. I mean, not only does he tell her that he's only come for Israel, but then he just pours it on. It isn't right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, look, it's been pointed out that the Greek has two words for dogs. One is a wild, snarling animal, and the other is a household pet. So the apologists say, you know, look, Jesus, you know, didn't call her a snarling dog. He called her a household dog. <laughs> look, my response to really doesn't matter. I don't take people food and give it to the dogs, Jesus is saying. I mean, people food is for people and not for throwing from the table. And that's horribly insulting. It's horribly condescending. And it just seems like a terrible thing to say. 
But again, we can almost hear the disciples saying, Amen, let's just send her away. And then the woman speaks. Fascinatingly enough, she's not defensive. If it's true she says that I'm a Gentile dog, well, then so be it. But the dogs do on occasion manage to eat that which falls from the table. Is there not something that might yet fall from your rich banqueting table and be discarded onto the floor? For if there is, it would be more than enough to heal my demon-possessed daughter. That's what she says. Now stop for a moment. Whenever Jesus was in a debate with his opponents, there was no one who bested him, not once. Whether it's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law or whether it's the bad attitude of the disciples, I mean, Jesus exhibits a sharp wit. He is clear insight into the truth. And, you know, to be his opponent, he just didn't want to face him. How frequently he responded by ending the debate with his opponents with something magnificent to say, except here. Jesus does respond to her, but it's not a retort. It's a statement of truth. He says, woman, great is your faith. You've known who I was, that I'm the Messiah. And second, you've known that even the slightest crumb from my table is more than enough mercy and grace for all that your daughter needs. And furthermore, you've paid no attention to an insult or a slight. You consider that mercy for your daughter is of a greater value than your pride. Great is your faith, woman. And with that, the great Messiah simply nods in her direction, be it done for you, and that instantly the daughter is set free from the demon. He need only speak the word, and nature and disease and demons, all of them flee from his presence. The woman had never doubted that for a moment. Great is her faith. Now think once more of the disciples who still, after their own experience with desperation, had still not gotten the point. Send her away. That's all they could think of. Instead of sending her away, Jesus has just showcased not just a woman of great need, but so much more. He showcased a woman of greater faith than his 12 disciples had. See, what is this story? The story of the Canaanite woman all about? You should have gotten it by now. What Jesus is doing by speaking to her this way, he's actually mirroring the attitude of the disciples, and he's showing the disciples in a mirror how wrong they are. There are not only great needs among the Gentiles. There is also greater faith than you've seen up till now. It's greater than the faith that you've encountered in Israel. Do the disciples really want to send such people away? Is this really what God wants? I think at this moment, the disciples were crushed. Jesus, as it were, has outed them. Their prejudice, their racism, how wrong they were, especially if all they've ever seen is the exterior, the nationality of someone. It's like the usher standing at the door of his church and he sees Mahatma Gandhi walking in and all he sees is an Indian man and he sends him away. Let him find the gospel in another church. Listen to Paul's words and it's recorded in Romans 10, 12 to 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives after his resurrection, just before he's taken up into heaven, what does he say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And Ephesians 2 verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, both being both Jew and Gentile one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Yeah, the hostility between the races has been broken down in Jesus. And in this regard, I've got a story to tell, and it it will always remain a precious memory for me. It happened one day after a church service, and I found myself in a very rich prayer circle. Myself and three other brothers were praying earnestly about something, and for the life of me, I can't remember anymore what we were praying about. But I do remember we had arms around each other, and we were crying out to our God. And when we were done, I started to look at my three brothers, and it suddenly occurred to me, I just hadn't seen it before. You know, I'm of German extraction. The brother next to me, Jewish. And the brother beside him, Syrian. And the last guy, truthful, I don't know. But it did occur to me, without Jesus, how would this be possible? But these are the accounts of loving camaraderie in which a band of brothers earnestly together as one people enters the throne room of grace pleading with the Lord of glory. Is not this the gospel of Jesus? Has not our union in Christ made it forever impossible to send a Canaanite woman away or an Indian Gandhi? or anyone who wants to learn about Jesus, is it really possible that any born-again follower of Jesus should not care more about the gospel than about their own race? Is it not the imperative that we flee from sin and that we cling to Christ? Our brotherhood and sisterhood consists of but one thing. We have renounced our sins, and together we have confessed Jesus as King and God, our Messiah. We have confessed that we are needy. We have acknowledged that we are all dogs and unworthy of grace. And yet one crumb from his table and we live. And that crumb is more than a crumb, is it not? It's Jesus walking to Jerusalem to die on a cross for our sins. What shall we say now? Shall we make evil distinctions between each other? No, we shall not. The Canaanite woman has taught us that. John, is Jesus so harsh here that he's just trying to reflect back to the disciples their attitudes? Yeah, that's what I've been trying to say. Exactly that. Jesus is mirroring the attitude of the disciples. He's saying, have a good look. This is what you guys look like. Here's a woman who's desperate and hurting. And here's a woman whose family is falling apart. She sees Jesus as the answer, as the Messiah, all of these other things. And if the disciples had their way, they would have said, you Gentile dog, you know, you're not, you don't belong to the master's table. Get out. Uh, We have nothing for you. Uh, Jesus, however, points out he has everything for the Gentiles. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us tomorrow as we continue in our series, The Mysteries of Compassion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Joshua from InDoubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Every week, InDoubt invites young adults into a conversation about the very real and challenging questions of faith, life, and culture. Our goal is to confront life's issues with the help of guest pastors and Christian leaders and to dive into the Bible to discover its truth and relevance for living life as a follower of Jesus. Join myself, Daniel, or Isaac every week along with special guests from around the globe to discuss things that matter most to you. Our hope is to reach not only the young adult who stands firm in their faith, but also the one who has questions or doubts. In Doubt can be heard through our podcast, mobile app, or on radio, and you can check out all of our programs and resources at indoubt.ca. 
In Doubt is a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada and possible only through the generous gifts of those who share our heart to engage a new generation with the Bible. For more information, or if you would like to support In Doubt with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca.